<clears throat> Dallas Willard said a number of years ago that some of the reasons why we do things physically, like been in the worship team just asked you to raise your hands, is because there are times where it's important for the heart to tell the body that this is a big deal and we're serious about it. And so even in things like that, that's really great. Thanks, worship team, for being here with us. We really appreciate it. For our, just our heart and our mind to say to our body, this really matters. It's the reason why it's great to get down on our knees from time to time and our head tells our body, um, this is about all of who we are, Mark. Uh, and so we do those things together. We are um, beginning a brand new series in the Gospel of Mark, and I am really looking forward to it and the connection that it has, um, not only here as we talk, but as we get together in small groups and have conversations about things. But I want to start out with a quote from a guy who was just a really witty uh, Christian leader, and uh, he said something like this. I've changed it a little bit, but his name was G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton, and he said, Christianity isn't something really that people try and find disappointing as much as it is something that people find difficult and so they never really try it. I think it's easy for us to say, well, I'm a Christian. In fact, how many of you would say, you know, I, if I were to describe myself, the fact that I'm a Christian would be a part of it. Could you just raise your hand? It's not, not, this is not a trick question, you guys. Let's just, let's, just, let's just try it again. I would identify myself and say, you know, I'm a Christian. Raise your hands. Go ahead. Let's just see that. Okay. Okay. That's good. Now, I've got another question for you, too, and it is this one. It says, how many of you would say, well, um, I'm not exactly sure all that's involved in being a Christian. Would you raise your hand? You see, that was a trick question because I'm not, and you can't either. Can you really? Can you actually be sure of everything that's invo involved in being a Christian? I haven't finished my life yet. I said, I'm giving my life to Jesus. I don't know everything that that means. Right? Anybody know everything that means? So what's happened here? I have decided, we have decided, we're going to be Christians, but we don't even know everything that that means. So here's the challenge. How will, can I be sure that I will continue to say yes to something when I don't even know everything that it means? Because we know him. Because there's the answer. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> We're going to look at that, actually. And it's more than even the fact that we know him. There's something deeper, actually, in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospels that I want us to look at starting this morning and going through the next nine weeks that we spend together with it. So if you have Bibles, that would be great. Smartphones really are a little bit more difficult for some of the stuff that I'm going to ask you to do this morning. But if you've got a Bible, I would just encourage you to bring one uh, during the course of these next number of weeks as we kind of walk through pieces of it. You might even find one in the seat in front of you. But it'd be kind of interesting for you to actually physically pull out uh, the Gospel of Mark right now, and you'll notice as you look in your Bibles that it's actually one of four books that's called the Gospels. And every single one of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the story of Jesus' life. And so we're looking at the Gospel as it's written down by Mark, and we're going to look at the first probably 18 verses this morning, and not in a great depth, that's what you get to do 
in your small group settings. But it starts out and it begins with these words. It starts out, the beginning of the good news, and good news is also used for the word gospel. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Then there's a quote from the Old Testament, Isaiah, talking about John the Baptist. Actually, a prophetic announcement before John the Baptist even came as this holy man who wore really itchy clothes and ate grasshoppers and, and baptized people in a remote place from Jerusalem. Isaiah actually said it would happen, that this holy man would come and he would announce Jesus. And so the next thing we see is we see John the Baptist talking about his ministry and its comparison with the one who would come after him being Jesus. And there comes Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, and he's baptized, and then he's sent into the wilderness to be tested by Satan, and there are wild animals there. Isn't that an interesting phrase that describes it when he goes in there? It's a place where there are wild animals. Just this picture of he, he lived in the same world of wild animals that the rest of us do. Just, just high-risk, uh, dangerous encounter living. And then we get to verse 14 and we read this. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting nets into the lake because they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and they followed him. Next couple of verses is a couple of other people are called and come as well. They leave everything and they follow him. Now I want to just say a couple things about this gospel mark that we have in our hands. I, I actually try to figure out how it compares with the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And let me just tell you something. It's actually the shortest of the gospels. In fact, I decided to count pages. So I went to the book of Matthew and I counted pages and there are 32 pages in my, in my Bible. 32 pages, actually, I can read through the whole book of Matthew and 28 chapters. And then when you go to the Gospel of Luke, it's a little bit shorter, longer than that, actually. 33 pages, uh, fewer chapters, 24, but it's a pretty sizable thing to read. And then you go to John and John is 25 pages and 21 chapters. And then we get to Mark, and Mark is considerably shorter than that. It's 20 pages and 16 chapters. It's not because Mark didn't have anything to say, you know, he had less to talk about. It's because he wanted to make really sure you knew exactly what it was that he wanted to say. In fact, you can actually take the book, 18 chapters, right? So what would be the middle of the Gospel of Mark? Just, just count. How many chapters do we have to count in to get to the very middle of the gospel? Eight chapters in. We're right at the end of chapter 8, beginning of chapter 9. We're right at the middle of the gospel of Mark. Look at what it says in, in chapter 8 of the gospel of Mark. The first part of the middle of Mark, it's actually a story of Jesus asking Peter, who do people say that I am? You see, it's right there in verse 27. They replied, some say you're John the Baptist. 
Others say Elijah and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he said, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the promised one, the king. Right in the middle of this story. Then you go to chapter 9, and the very next thing that happens in the second part of the middle of the Gospel of Mark is a voice comes from heaven, and it says, it says about Jesus, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. Do you see what's happened here? This gospel started out with an introduction that Jesus is the Messiah. At the very center of the book, Peter says Jesus is the Messiah. God says essentially Jesus is the Messiah. And then it moves to a conclusion. But what's interesting even about both ends of it is at the very beginning of it, Jesus is introduced as the one as the one who is alive and the one who is to be followed, to be followed in chapter 16, we find out he's the one who lives forever, the resurrection. You go to chapter 2 and you find in chapter 2 that Jesus says, I will forgive you of all of your sins. We go to chapter 15 and it says, he died for all of our sins. In chapter 3, it says great crowds of people follow Jesus. You know what it says in chapter 14? Great crowds of people abandon Jesus. Do you see what I'm getting at here with this book? It's not just like a police log with corroborating testimony. This gospel is like, it's like a tribute. That's what it is. He's not just Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this. No, this is a tribute written about a person that Mark wants to honor. Not with fake stories, but with stories that get to the point that Jesus wanted to make, that, that Mark wanted to make. He is the king. And, Jesus, and, and Mark wrote a gospel in such a way that we would know he thought about this when he wrote it. So that's the gospel of Mark that we're looking at this morning and during the course of, of this, this week. It's the, called the good news. Right there in the middle of the story, it's the good news. So we find out what that looks like actually. And, and the good news by New Testament writers, if we look through all of the New Testament writers, we'd actually discover that the good news was about Jesus as the Son of God. He's the one, he's the one who provides salvation for us. Every single one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about Jesus was the one who provided salvation. How did he do it? He did it through his life, he did it through his death, and he did it through his resurrection of the dead. This is the Gospel of Mark because it's the Gospel. Now, I want to say one more thing about this. Um, it's the gospel mark because it's the gospel and it's about the good news but the good news isn't a message the good news actually is Jesus I, I, I want you to get this it's not like a message something you write down actually I think it is it's seven words into the gospel that says it's the good news about Jesus not of Jesus, because if it was the good news of Jesus, we could just basically reduce it to, okay, what did he say? What came out of his mouth? But it says it's the good news about Jesus. 
In other words, the good news is Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. Think of all of the people, religious people who come along and they have got great words. In fact, we've got them in religious books all over the world. Pick your resource, pick your religion, pick your holy man. And we hear what they said. Not this one. This one is not so much about what Jesus said, but who he was and how he lived. This cannot be reduced to quoting him. He refuses to allow us to think that that's the gospel, what he said. It's who he was and what he did. That's the gospel. I mean, if, if, I, I would love to be put in a position where I could be measured by my words and not my life. Wouldn't we all? If we could just be measured by our words and not our life. And yet Jesus says, I will be measured by my life. You know what's true about this? The gospel is untweetable. It is. It can't be reduced to a slogan. It can't be reduced to a bumper sticker. It can only be in describing, let me tell you about Jesus. And not just what he said. The gospel is untweetable. It's another aspect of Jesus being the good news, and it's who he was. He's described here as the Messiah. And, and in Jewish literature, and understanding even back from the Old Testament, they knew what that meant. It was about the kingdom of God. It even says it in the verses right after he's described as the Messiah. It says the kingdom of God is near. It means it's <laughs> reach out. <laughs> it's right there. It's not it's coming soon. It, it, you just look for it and grab it, and you'll see pieces of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the king. Do you remember the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Lucy sees the beaver, and the beavers, and the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are trying to tell him about Aslan, this lion. And, and Lucy gets a little bit nervous, and, and she says, but is he safe? And I think it's Mrs. Beaver who just almost mocks Lucy and says, safe? He's the king of the world. Who said anything about safe? Jesus is the king. This is where my job gets really easy because I don't even have to persuade you of anything. I don't have to wax alcohol. I don't have to try to convince you. I don't have to beg you. All I have to say is this. He's the king. Guess what that means? This is a little bit of this, you know, have you got that app, if this, then that? If this, Jesus is the king, then that, we're subject to the king. He's the king of the world and our only reasonable response to that is for us to live subject to the one who is the king. The gospel is about the person, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. But the gospel is also about the king. In verse 10, it describes the heavens were torn open. And the announcement was made, the kingdom of God is present on earth. You know what this means? 
Jesus doesn't want your vote. He doesn't want mine. He doesn't want my ear as if he's got something really, really wonderful to say. And if I pay attention, I'll be better off. He doesn't even want my attendance at church. That's a dangerous thing to say as a pastor. But it's true. Jesus doesn't want my vote. He doesn't want my ear. He doesn't want my attendance at church. He's the kingdom. He's the king of the world. And he wants my life. He wants my life. Now, as he's described as the king, there are all these wonderful attributes about him. I mean, he's good. He is good. He went into the wilderness. He lived just like us, and he struggled. He knows what my life is like. So that's great. But at the end of the sentence, it doesn't matter whether he's good or whether he understands. He's king. (laughs) That's it. That's it. Jesus is king. That's the gospel. It actually even is the good news. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But let's go to this third piece of it. And it's asking this question. So how do I respond if that's true? And Mark actually helps us with that. In verse 17, he quotes Jesus as saying, what does Jesus say right in verse 17? What does it say there? Come, follow me. You know what? Think about this. Before Adele finishes saying hello, Jesus, in the Gospel of Mark, has already said, follow me. How's that for an introduction? I mean, we are not more than 312 words into this gospel. Adele's not done introducing herself yet. And we already know this thing about Jesus. He says to you, follow me. Come and follow me. How can he do that? Why does he do that? Because he's the king. That's it. So, so what does it look like? Well, there are three pieces of it that we see here in this introduction to the Gospel of Mark. What does it mean for me, actually, to respond in what's a reasonable, appropriate way to the Lord? The first thing is this. It's to worship. He says, he says leave it all behind. This is the I surrender all deal. You, you, you will worship me by determining that Um, I matter more than anything else you've got. In fact, I'm asking you to leave it all behind. Now, the disciples don't leave fishing behind and never come back to it. We actually see that in the end of the Gospel of John. So it's not like they just say, I will never do that again. But when they come back and do it, they will never do it the same way again. And everybody knows the significance it has. If you can get up and walk away from it in the middle of what everybody else says is important, things being done, you're saying something about that in comparison to him. 
You know, this is where in your reading, if you're reading the book by Keller, or you, even, in your, even in your small groups, you'll talk about what this means. And Keller makes this really great point in the first chapter of his, of his book. And he talks about what it means to follow Jesus and how we can listen to him and hear him say follow. And he said, and that's hard for us if we basically believe that the world revolves around us. And, and, and frankly, that's my tendency. That, that everything that's happening around me, I'm kind of in the middle of it. And, and it's a, in some ways about me, and I have a lot of decisions to make. But Keller describes that as a really stationary position. I'm not going to move, I'm not going to follow Jesus if the world revolves around me. And when I do, I will follow him because I actually think it's good for me. You know, it's, it's like, okay, God, if you can convince me that this is a good idea, I'm all in. Is that worship? No, 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 no. That's still me being in charge. If you can convince me that this will be safe for me, I'm all in. Is that worship? No, that's still me being in charge. Jesus has persuaded me he's not in charge of me. I'm still making the decisions. Do you see how easy it is for us to think we're following Jesus and we're not? We live stationary lives until Jesus persuades us that it's logical and it makes sense to do it. And Keller will say to us, that will never be worship, Mark. I will live a life where I will say, I will do it. Period. And it doesn't have to be safe. It doesn't have to make sense. I don't have to be able to connect the dots. I will just simply do it because you are king. And God says, now you're getting close to worship. Now, now you're moving towards worship. Now you're actually discovering that you've not really tried Christianity yet. And you walked away before you even knew how breathtaking it was. Now you discover, Mark, that Christianity, there's difficulty because it means surrender. And, and not a lot of people are prone to try that. Think about it. I think that's one of the reasons why we have to ask the question that we asked at the beginning of our time together. How do you know that you will continue to follow him when things get hard? If you've made the choice to make him king. Because when things get hard or painful or disappointing or high risk, we do it not because we think it's okay to do it. We do it because he said to do so. And I will say this to you. If you decide, if I decide to make Jesus king, that faith, that faith will last a lifetime because of who he is, worship. The second thing is, this is they left their nets and they followed him. He had called them to be what? Disciples, right? And they did this thing together. He called a group of people together to follow him. And we always see it in the Gospels. We see a group of people connected together with each other following Jesus. We do it together. It's the way he made it to be. You, you can't do this one on your own. 
you'll, you'll, you'll fall into all kinds of messes if you do. And God actually designed us with the gifts of the Spirit to interconnect with each other. Hands, feet, eyes, nose, all of that together. we got to do this thing together. So to follow Him means I follow Him into community with others that are deciding to follow Him. And so I get to learn from your mistakes. You get to learn from mine. I get to know who you are and encourage you at just the right time, and you're going to need it, and then there will be times that I need it. Friends, it's the way he made it to work. It just is. To be connected with other people. Some of you are already in small groups, which is a wonderful tool to be connected with other people. And I would imagine you will have rich conversations this week about what it means for him to be king rather than a person who gives advice and then I decide whether I'm going to treat him, whether I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Because I would imagine you, like me, will find out all of the different discoveries in your life where you said, you know what, I'm really not treating him like king now, am I? Because I'm still trying to decide. So he says it's about worship and it's about community. And then the third piece of it is about a life that's filled with purpose. He says, you will become fishers of men. There are people out there that God cares about and God wants to give you and me a life of significance where we actually get to be a part of shaping the trajectory of the people in my class in high school or that I hang out with on weekends. I, God, actually, God actually wants me to be a part of shaping the trajectory of their life. Think about that. He's actually not only inviting me into it, but he just says that's what it will be. Last week, Kevin Harney was here, and if you weren't here, I will just implore you to listen to that uh, sermon, that talk online. Just really, really beneficial, what it means for us to be seed sowers. And um, I think for many of us, he just really made some great points. And I decided I was going to jump all in on that. And he gave us this example of just pray for people and pray with people. And my tendency is I'm not going to say anything. I, I don't know how they'll, what they'll think about it. And he gave us this example. He says, you know, if someone says no and we think we're persecuted just because they said no, I don't want to be prayed for. He said he hadn't heard that in a long time. I actually have a person in my life that I had that happen to a couple months ago, and I, it, just, it just kind of <laughs> wrecked me, but I decided I'm going to continue to do it. So on, on Monday morning, Monday afternoon, I'm headed to Chicago for our meetings, and my car's broken down, and um, I decided to take Uber to the airport. And I got picked up by a guy my age, not sure what he wanted to do with his life. He had done all kinds of things. I mean, he had had adventures all over the world. He and his wife had been involved in all kinds of just kind of like eye-popping amazing things. But here he is, driving a vehicle, taking people back and forth to the airport. And he's been doing it six months, and he's got other issues going on in his life. And I'm just hearing Kevin Harney's words about praying. And it's just getting really, you know, I'm starting to sweat. And I, I, this is it, this is it. 
And I, I said, Riley, would you, you know, this might seem crazy to you. And, I, and he talked about his faith and total disinterest in spiritual things. And um, I said, would you mind if I just prayed for you? And he said, yeah, you can do that. And I prayed for him. And I decided, I believe it's real. Isn't that crazy? A pastor decides to believe it's real. <laughs> and I'm going to pray for something to happen in his life today that will help him to see Jesus. And so I did. And I got done praying. It wasn't long. My mom used to pray at meals, and she would just pray till the food got cold. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. I prayed, and I said, amen, and he looked at me, and he said, thank you. I don't know who he saw next. Try Uber, by the way. I mean, these intersection points with Jesus, and that's what Jesus calls us to. He's the king. Sow the seed. Trust God, and let God prove himself trustworthy because that's what it comes down to, friends. God doesn't so much want our obedience as he wants us to trust him. Just, just as we finish up, I want to just tell you a quick story. Don't put the picture on the screen yet, uh, team. I, 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 when my kids were young, one of my little girls, we were at the, we were at the meal table. Don't know, remember which meal it was. And I was insisting that my daughter, one of them, would actually finish the food on her plate. And she looked at me and she said to me with defiant eyes, you are not the boss of me. <laughs> now let's just show a picture of my girls. Here are two of the three of them. Which one do you think it was? There's Audrey on the left, tongue stuck out. I don't know what Meredith is doing there. I don't know if this is a gangster sign or whatever it is, but... But she's got that thing going, and there's Audrey. Which one of them do you think said, you are not the boss of me? It was Audrey, wasn't it? And, and, and you know what Audrey needed to know? I mean, there's everything inside of me that wanted to say, oh, yes, I am, girl, and you will eat your peas. You know what Audrey needed to know? Not that I was her boss, but that I was her father, a father. It's not just simply a role in which we demand compliance, but we want to cultivate trust. I want you to know who I am. I didn't say, I am the boss of you. I said, Audrey, I am your father. And what God wants us to know is this. He is our father and he is our king. And he doesn't want us at the end of the day to say, I obeyed. He wants us to say, I trust him more. One thing as you leave here this morning, ask yourself, ask God, God, what is one thing I can do this week that will cultivate my trust in you? One thing. What is one thing I will do this week, I can do this week, that will cultivate my trust in you?
We talked about use of resources and how hard it is to be generous and the challenge of it. Maybe it's in that category. We've talked as well, Kevin talked last week about praying for people. It might be getting together into a small group, pulling some people aside because one hasn't formally been formed for you and you just pull the, pull the study guide together and say, hey, do you want to study about Jesus together? I don't know what it was. I'm just throwing those out. At the end of the day, isn't that you respond to what I suggested that you do, but that you find something that you can do that will help you to know that God can be trusted, okay? We good with that? One thing I can do this week that will cultivate my trust in the one who is the king of the world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for your love and your compassion and your grace. Thank you that you invite us in and that we can call you King and Father as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.